How would you like to keep more eyeballs on your content and generate more income? Hey, this is Jared Krause, host of the Buying Online Businesses podcast. And in this episode, I'm speaking with Sam Roberts from Voodoo Marketing, who is also the author of Screw the Zoo and has been featured in and published in many uh, places like Forbes, Entrepreneur, Inc. Magazine, Moz.com, Quicksprout, AMX, and the list goes on. Sam is an absolute weapon when it comes to SEO. Now, Sam and I talk about in this episode how to actually audit your site and what to pay attention to. We also talk about how to optimize your site for a great user experience and how that can turn into more income for you and your business. Then we dive into what to actually do if your site gets hit with the Google update. And if you actually lose traffic, there's a step-by-step approach that Sam actually explains in, in what you should be doing to remedy that. And then we talk about how to protect your business from SEO and cyber attacks, which is a huge thing that I didn't really know about and I think you should know about too, guys. And then we talk about how to think like Google. Sam has this really great thought process and ideology that we need to be able to think like Google to foresee what's actually going to happen. So we dive into that and we talk about what's to actually come from Google and how they'll be using our data in the future and how you should be thinking about and optimizing our businesses for ourselves to be prepared for that. So there's so much in this episode, so many great little stories and analogies that Sam shares. Now, it's an absolutely amazing episode that you're going to love. Before we get stuck in this podcast episode, I want to tell you that this podcast is not the only way that I can help you for free. I have my due diligence framework, which a lot of people in our industry have actually been raving about, which will help you with knowing what to look out for when buying a website, including questions to be asking the seller. So Go away and get that at buyingonlinebusinesses.com forward slash free resources. And there's some other awesome free resources on that page too. Let's dive in. Today's episode is brought to us by Niche Website Builders, which is a company a few of my clients are using and have used for content creation and link building services. They do everything from start to finish. So from keyword research all the way to uploading your completed article for you. We've also had Bob members buy ready-made affiliate sites built by Niche Website Builders. So if you're looking to outrank your competitors' content and build better backlinks, Niche Website Builders and I have a special deal for you. Head to nichewebsite.builders forward slash Bob. I'll put a link in the show notes for you. But again, that's www.nichewebsite.builders dot builders forward slash Bob. Do you want to start investing in websites, but don't want to drop $20,000 or more on your first investment? Check out Odie's where you can buy premium aged domains to build a website on and add done for you affiliate site packages to help you grow your website and get seen. Instead of buying a crummy website that's been built to sell with no authority, buy a premium aged domain with built-in authority great SEO and fresh quality content for your website. Odie's right now has a crazy 30% off summer sale on until the end of August. So head to odies.global to check out their great deals. That's O-D-Y-S dot G-L-O-B-A-L. Link will be in the description too. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of the Buying Online Businesses podcast. Today, we have Sam McRoberts. Sam, you came on in episode number 43, and we talked about how SEO is changing and how it will change many years into the future. And I dare say a lot of what we talked about is quite relevant. So you guys go away and check out episode number four. But Sam, thanks so much for coming back. 
My pleasure. Good to be here. Awesome. So whilst we talked about how SEO is going to evolve in the future and, and, and how things are going to change, what I want to talk about is some more technical stuff. Um, we talked more about strategy and how we could evolve with the ever-changing movements of SEO. Now I wanted to bring you back and talk more about some sort of technical stuff because I know a lot of people are dealing with some technical stuff and either losing traffic and some people are gaining traffic. I did just have a client message me said his traffic just doubled since the the whole rollout um, happened with the Google updates, which is awesome. Some people have been very affected though. Yeah, and you guys do SEO audits and I know a lot of people want to, you know, kind of do some SEO audits but may not be able to afford your services. So what are some of the things that people should start looking at to diagnose or do an SEO audit for their site? Like what are some top things they should be sort of unpicking? So I think the latest thing that's top of everybody's mind in the SEO space is Google's core web vitals. So over the last decade, they've been dialing up the notch for page speed and mobile usability, but they just rolled out their core web vitals, which are a handful of metrics that they're paying much closer uh, attention to. So things like largest contentful paint, when most of the stuff is visible on the screen, or cumulative layout shift. So as your page is loading, is it bumping stuff down the screen as elements pull in? Because that's a really bad user experience. And then a bunch of other factors. But like they're, they're looking to understand essentially more and more, is this site a really good experience for a mobile visitor? Google cares a lot about the user experience. And so do visitors. I mean, the worse your user experience is, the more likely people are to bounce. Mm-hmm. And I feel like for a lot of sites, a lot of web developers even, they're figuring this out more, but they focus primarily on functionality and visual appeal and don't necessarily know a lot about making lightweight, streamlined websites. So I would say it's one of the most effective levers you can pull if you have a very, very slow site to drastically improve the speed can be really beneficial. That's one, and that's top of mind. Making sure that everything on the site is easily crawlable, like making sure you're not blocking things to crawlers that you shouldn't be, that all of your important pages can be found. Making sure that your site doesn't have a lot of errors or that you're properly redirecting pages if you change URLs. So like each page on your site, every time it, it gets linked to, it's building up some internal, some value, some link value to that page that then gets flowed through your site. So if you change that URL later and you don't redirect it somewhere, all of those links pointing in just go away. They, they die on the vine. So making sure you properly redirect mm-hmm. things if you change URLs is a really common one. Yeah, those are some of the things I pay most attention to. It, what you look at really changes depending on the size of the site. Like if it's a multi-million or billion-page site, you're looking at a different basket of things. I do want to talk about user experience because it's huge. I've been mentioning in a, in a few of my other things about how critical user experience is. Like, obviously, the longer people are on your site, the more money you can make, and that can be for any business model, right? Because you've got more opportunity to be able to sell to them, or even if you're a media business and you're just creating great content, the longer, the more ads they're going to see on, on your site or affiliate links or whatever it is. So what? let's unpack user experience. Like what is good user experience? What are some good things that people or some things people can be doing with their site to create a better user experience? Sure. 
So, I mean, the, the speed and the visual interface is like first. So you go to Google, you search for something, you see something that looks like it's a good fit, you click it, the site loads. So how long it takes for the site to load is going to drastically impact how many people stick around. If the site's really slow, usually if it takes more than about three seconds to load, a significant portion of people are going to bounce and go try something else. As long as you're under about that three second mark, you're probably okay. Obviously faster is better. Once it's clear that the site's loading and working, they'll stick around and let it finish. But if it then gets janky, so let's say they're trying to read a blog post. So it loads up. It looks like it's there. They start reading. And then, uh uh-oh, your ads get pulled in and other stuff finishes loading and it yanks the content down the page. Like that's a really bad experience. Then you have to scroll to get back to it. Maybe it happens again. Mm. That's not good. So there's the actual interaction with the site. And then there's how well you've put yourself into the mind of the person who's doing that search. Right. If you're searching best type of CBD gummy to help with sleep, whatever it is, how well have you really thought through that, that problem and how well are you addressing it in the content you wrote? When somebody hits that page, is it clear that you feel their pain and maybe you've tried a lot of things and here's why this has helped you the most? And like, Do you really understand the mind of the person who's searching for what you have? That, I think, is the biggest part of the user experience. Like, Did you create content that satisfies the searcher intent? So as long as the site loads fast, it isn't janky, easy to read and the content matches their intent, they're probably going to stick around for as long as you continue to answer their questions. I love that. It's more, I would say that's the fundamental piece, right? Is making sure your content is that good. If your content is that good and say you had a four second or five second load time, but people know that your content's that good, they're going to be a bit more lenient, right? And it's the same that I would almost say that content comes first before any of these other sort of tactics of how can I keep them on my site and my page longer in terms of more internal links to relevant pages that's going to create a better user experience or a better experience on the page because they're going to go deeper down the wormhole. Um, So content really does come first, right? It's like fundamental. I think the content is fundamental, and that's really what Google is going to be looking at in terms of ranking. Primarily, they're looking at the content, how well it's satisfying that query, and then the link-centric metrics, and then other stuff after that. But I do think they kind of go together very tightly. So if you have the best content in the world, but your user experience is atrocious, unless you've already built up a really good relationship with your readers, people aren't going to stick around long enough to realize that it's the best possible content. So if you're planning to pull in new people and not just your existing audience, you do need to pay much more attention to the overall user experience. Good content alone isn't going to cut it. On the flip side, you know, if you have the most amazing user experience, everything's super fast and it's reliable and it always works, you can get away with not having the best possible content. So like Amazon would be a good example. It has plenty of products, but the search is a mess. Like trying to figure out which of these products is the right product you were looking for and wading through all of the terrible titles and descriptions, like it's actually gotten a lot worse, but people will wade through it because they know that Amazon is fast, it's easy to pay, the shipping is reliable, refunds are easy, like they've built up enough trust that you can get away with subpar content because you still satisfy the overarching intent and the other pieces balance it out. So it's a a balancing game. Yeah, yeah, hugely so. I guess it's really understanding 
like you said before, why are people on your site um, understanding your business model and getting in the, the head of those users and making your site, not just your content, but your overall site, like a user-friendly for that type of person. Some niches may not like a lot of ads. Some niches don't mind a lot of ads. Some niches don't want to see you trying to have an opt-in at the top of the page or a pop-up or whatever it is, but some are just accustomed to it and used to it. Or maybe they come to the site mostly to just check out your opt-in and stuff like that as well because you're in that type of niche. I think that's really important, right? No, I was just I, like the the pop up thing is particularly interesting. That's that's something that I think even if people are used to it, where you place those is part of how well you're thinking through this whole user experience thing. So if, if somebody is visiting your site for the first time, there's a decent chance they're going to hit your homepage or maybe a blog post. Why would you throw a pop up right as somebody gets to a page? If they're, if they're a new user, you have no relationship, they don't trust you, they haven't experienced what you have to offer to determine if it's high quality, like your rate of people opting in is actually going to be much, much lower than it would if you waited and said, all right, well, maybe if people get 75% of the way down this page, then I throw an opt-in. I know that they've read that far, they're probably committed, they're probably going to finish. Or maybe you wait for exit intent only. Like only when somebody is ready to leave, do I say, hey, by the way, here's a thing closely related to what you just read. Would you like it? But like, it bugs the shit out of me when people will put a pop-up on their homepage or the top of a blog post, like right as it loads. It's like, I don't know you yet. Stop. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? It's like trying to sell to you it's, it's like you're walking down the shopping center and somebody's like hey can you buy this product or donate like i've got no idea who you are or what you want or why i'm out of here like don't don't even look at me you actually go to the opposite side of the alley to try and get away from these people that's that's the sort of you know you've got to think about this when people are going to your homepage or your you know your first blog page and i think the key thing to remember here is is relevancy for an opt-in of like where can you put your opt-in that's going to allow you to get the best conversion like you said and as an example it may be in a blog post you may have it actually embedded in between a couple of paragraphs because two or three paragraphs before this actual opt-in, you're talking about it and seeding it and actually it flows into it of like, how do you solve this problem? This is what you need to do. And then boom, you've got an embedded opt-in of like, there's the solution, right? So yeah. you you problem, then you aggravate and then you solve that opt-in that's embedded in the, and the conversion rate is going to be higher and it's not going to be spammy. It's, it's, it's solution and best, value focused. The best place to do it, I think, is in a way or a place that feels like it's more about them and not about you, right? If it's, if it's right at the start, first, right as you hit a site, that's all about you. It's like, I want this, gimme, gimme. And if you tie it into your content and show it at the very end and it's, you know, it's helping this person with like the next logical step in their journey, now it's about them. It's like, you're not trying to extract from me, you're trying to give to me and that makes all the difference. I like it. I like it so much. It's that's really really good. It's how is it about them, not about you. <laughs> Your business isn't growing because you've made it about you. Your business is growing because 
you're helping other people and you've made it about them. Without them, the business wouldn't be there, right? The site, website wouldn't be there. <laughs> That's great. Have you, ever, have you ever seen that image of uh, like Mario? So there's Mario and then the mushroom and then you've got like Fireball Mario and Bowser and it's like your business isn't selling this. Like you're not selling the mushroom. You're selling this. You're selling Fireball Mario and his ability to trounce Bowser. And it's understanding the difference that, that helps you to effectively sell. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I haven't seen it, but I, I get the analogy for sure. I want to talk about risks, SEO risks in, in our business as well. Before we get to that, some people have already had a tough time with changes to that Google algorithm and it's a constant thing. And people are, are fretting like, how do I get this solved? How do I get my traffic back? What do I need to do to my website? If somebody has come up against a you know something like this, where should they start? Should they be going into Call Web Vitals first and, and sort of detecting and diagnosing those things, or is there some other things to start picking apart? I know this is very broad and can be I mean, very hard, the, but if you were to give a general answer, <laughs> the the very first place I would start would be with a Google search for whatever keyword phrase you're going after. And reading through the top three to five sites that rank for that keyword and asking yourself, what's different? Do these sites do something materially different than what I do? Is the content better? Is it richer? Are they covering the question from more angles? Uh, then, you know, is the experience better? Is the site faster? Does it have no ads or no pop-ups? Like, why is it that Google is choosing to put these sites first? And if you look at those things, if you look at the content and the user experience, and there truly is no material difference between you and those sites, then you look at links. Like, how many links is this page getting? How many links is this site getting compared to yours? Mm. And mm. determine, like, should, should they be ahead of you? You know, if they have 10 times as many links and everything else is the same, like, they're going to rank ahead of you, plain and simple. But if you get into a scenario where the content is on par, the user experience is on par, and the links are on par or you're ahead, now you're getting into some weird territory and you probably need to start poking in your pond. Maybe there's something technical that you're missing on your end. Maybe you've accidentally blocked that page. Maybe you've excluded it from indexing. Maybe you uh, have a canonical tag pointing somewhere else instead of referencing that page itself. Like, there's lots of little things that can break. And then you know, there's so many layers you can continue to go down after that, depending on what the issue is. But the first place I always start is, does my content truly deserve to be ahead of what Google already has ranking in those top few positions. If it doesn't, start there. I love that. Check content quality first, links, internal links, backlinks, and then go to the tech. That's that's refreshing for a lot of people to hear that I know that, that are listening right now like, okay, cool, That's doesn't freak me out. At least they've got a, a, an easier starting point than trying to go poke around in, in some sort of in the back end of their site and you know sort out some scary tech SEO stuff that they've got no idea about. <laughs> yeah. I, I actually have a whole blog post about this uh, on diagnosing traffic drops, but Google will give you most of the information you need to figure out what's going on and why. Mm. And, but sometimes, sometimes you don't, sometimes you'll get an update and things will just seem to, to change and your content's fine. 
but you don't understand why, there are some scenarios where the problem is that the overall intent has changed. So one specific search phrase may not have the same intent behind it consistently over time. It may mean something different at various points. And so that's another thing to watch for is, has what Google shows in search results changed dramatically? Is it a completely mm. different set of sites? Is it sites going after a different, you know, more purchase-centric instead of information-centric? Like, has the intent changed? Often it's just that. That's so good to think about for somebody that's looking to buy an online business uh, or, you know, uh, specifically a content site is to be checking the quality of the content and checking if the intent of what those keywords are that they're ranking for has changed and the content that has that you're buying on the site is old content because that could, you be, could be buying yourself a lot of work there in terms of having to refresh and refine that content to get it back into the same intent as what Google is making hierarchy, right? Yeah. If you're looking to buy a site specifically, there's a couple of things that I would probably recommend looking at. So one would be Google Trends. Look at the at the rough keyword space, maybe the top five or 10 keywords that the site you're considering buying ranks for, and look at the trends over time. So is what you want to see here, is the trend moving up or is it down or is it flat? Because it's going to give you an idea of the, the pool. So if you're fighting with a growing number of people for a shrinking pie, it's probably not a good long-term business to, to be in. Another thing to look for would be how many total pages are on this site and what percentage of those pages are bringing in most of the traffic. In most cases, you're going to get some sort of Pareto distribution. But if you have a site where 90% of the organic traffic is coming from two or three pages, that's really, really risky. Because at any time, something could change for one of those pages or keywords, and you just lost an enormous chunk of, of traffic. Like You don't want single or close to single points of failure in a potential business. On the flip side, if you know if the site has 500 pages and the traffic is you know, evenly or semi-evenly distributed across like a hundred of those, that's a lot better. Much, much lower SEO risk for a site that distributes that way. I, th I would say the last would be over time, has the number of keywords and the organic traffic for this site gone pretty steadily up? You know, if you see any really, really wild swings in the history of the site, especially if you see multiple of those, that's something to pay attention to. Yeah, yeah, wild swings. It's it's like investing in a stock that's super volatile and you just don't know if you're going to be able to get a handle on it, right? It's like kind of something that's almost outside of your control, which is a huge risk. Another risk that you mentioned is that single source dependency, like 90% of traffic comes from just Google and you've got only two keywords. This has happened to a client of mine and I mentioned it and um, what I always do in a due diligence review for people is I highlight all the risks and say if you're comfortable with these risks and uh, completely understand them and you're still willing to purchase the business, that's okay but understand how long it's going to take to remedy that possible risk and get more keywords ranked to put traffic, um, you know, get more tra spread that traffic out and diversify that risk of single source dependency of just one or two keywords and this did happen he bought the business it was two keywords main keywords getting most of the traffic it was quite high it wasn't 90 percent. it was quite high and uh lost rankings on one of them and lost a bunch of revenue and he didn't it's not like he lost 50 percent of traffic and 50 percent of revenue it wasn't that bad but he understood and it was within three weeks of purchasing the business which is very unlucky he could have got something ranked 
quite quickly and had a good piece of content or a couple of good pieces of content to diversify that risk. But it's still something that we need to be able to understand. And that's why I suggest most people don't. If it's anywhere, even if it's like five pages are bringing in 20% of the traffic, it's still a big hit to lose one of those keywords. So it's it's definitely something to for people to understand, right? Yeah. What channels are bringing in your traffic? How does it distribute? What pages are bringing in your traffic? What keywords? How does that distribute? Yeah. You don't single points of failure, man. You just you don't want them. No, n- not at all. I've I've had it happen to me in business, and it was it's uh, really nearly lost my business, um, one of my businesses, and it's and it's scary and uh, a lot of work to climb back from. I tell you that much. Talking about risk, though. You before you even hit the record button, there was something really cool that you mentioned. You, I think it was a conference or something you got pulled into, and and you were listening to people that were talking about. We were talking about some attacks. People can go away on negative SEO attacks, and we started talking about risk prevention. How can we gear up? You know, I spoke to an operator for one of my businesses, and. He said, Jared, you, you know, they've come in and done a bit of a negative SEO attack on, on the business with links and all this sort of stuff. And that can be common for some niches, not the niche that I was in here with this particular business. But what are some of the things, and that may be just one thing that people can, you know, try and prevent from happening. But what are some of the other attacks that can happen and how can we set ourselves up for negative SEO attacks, I guess? I mean, negative SEO is one that for the most part, it shouldn't shouldn't affect you. Google's really good at catching that type of stuff and just canceling it out. There are some exceptions. The most notable would be if if somebody wants to do negative SEO against you, the most effective way to do it is in a way that looks like you were doing it yourself. If they know what keywords you're going after and what pages you're trying to rank over a long period of time, Mm -hmm. they can deliberately screw you over by doing it that way. But even then, Google may just choose to ignore those links. Like the, this is a known risk on their part, and so that's how they've chosen generally to to handle it. But there's a lot of other worse stuff. I mean, if somebody really wants to screw with your business, they could hire a hacker to come in and mess with your site. Like, hey, go poke at the website, find some vulnerabilities, and they can do it in a way that you you might not notice that something has happened, but something has happened. So you can put in a little piece of code that tells Google not to come back to this site for a certain amount of time. And you could set that really, really far out. Like, hey, Google, you know, we're going to be doing maintenance on the site. Don't come back for a year. And they don't recrawl your site for a wow. year. Like you can do that wow. and you could do it by, by doing a relatively unobtrusive hack into the site. There's other stuff, you know, if you can figure out, like if you could hack into a domain registrar and shift away the ownership of their mm-hmm. domain, you could redirect it somewhere else. You, I, there, there's lots of things that pose risk to a business. And if somebody is, you know, angry enough or enterprising enough or just doesn't care about the risks, like, yeah, there's, there's a lot of stuff you can watch for so I guess I guess the answer to that is uh, just have business insurance <laughs> because uh, I mean you can't really just protect yourself from some of these things, right? I mean, income insurance, business insurance, one you can one or the other or, or both, but yeah, or you can you can protect yourself from some of these risks. Yeah, and I mean a lot, sure. So you could sign up for something like Securi. S-U-C-U-R-I. They have a, a web scanning service that will monitor for vulnerabilities, known issues, let you know when stuff needs to be updated. 
if your site's built on like WordPress, just keeping everything up to date, keep WordPress up to date, keep your plugins up to date. There are things you can add to WordPress that add additional security. So you could turn on two-factor authentication for your website. You can restrict access to certain pages to certain IP addresses. So like you can go in and say, all right, it's nobody is allowed to hit the login page for my site unless they're coming in from a specific IP address. And then you could hire, you could pay for a VPN service that gives you a dedicated IP address and have everybody in your company who needs to access the website use that. So only one IP address is able to access your website and only the people who work on it have access to that IP. And then that way, it's almost impossible to hack into that site unless you know what that one IP address happens to be. Mm. Like there's, there's lots of steps you can take to make yourself more secure, less prone to, to hacking. Because like you don't need to outrun the bear, right? You need to just outrun everybody else and you, can, you stay ahead of the bear. It's the same thing. You make yourself not worth the effort and most people will go away. Yeah, yeah, awesome. I like that analogy. You don't need to outrun the bear. <laughs> it's a it's a pretty pretty brutal survival um, thing, but it's it's true. I really um, want to talk about something that you've mentioned in some of your content is learning to think like Google and starting to think like Google. I like this ideology. So, as a business owner, we can start to foresee how they're going to evolve and shift and move and be on the good side of this. It's like knowing what they're going to roll out and optimizing your business for that so you can benefit from that rollout rather than be on the back foot like a lot of people are. So what are you know what do you mean by learning to think like Google like how how do we start to look at Google and go what are they going to do next or what are they what are they going to have rolling out Yeah this applies for Google this is also something useful for pretty much every aspect of your life but learning to understand everybody's incentives mm-hmm. So with Google in particular we know that the vast majority of their revenue comes from ads they serve those ads. Most of that ad revenue is coming from ads shown on Google searches. So Google knows that as long as we satisfy most people's searches when they go to Google, they're more likely to use us, more likely to see more ads. So relatively simple incentive feedback loop here. The next step is, well, we want people to see more ads, which means we need to get them to do more queries each day. And we need to keep them on the site looking at these ads longer. So how do we do that? The main way that Google's been doing that over the last five to 10 years is by serving up more and more answers directly in Google without having to send you away from Google. So I'd say one of the biggest areas of risk for a website owner is if you have a website and all you do is answer relatively simple queries, you know, if the, if the gist of what somebody is searching for could be satisfied with a paragraph or two of content or maybe a link to something else, you, you absolutely have short to midterm risk in your business from Google deciding to snag that. And they've done it with, I mean, everything, flights, movie times, sports scores, like weather, you, you name it. Right? And it used to be that you'd do the search and you had to click through to a website to find the information. Now, it's something like, I want to say it's up to about 60% of all searches on Google are no-click wow. search. So they go to Google, they do the search, they see their answer on Google, and that's it. It stops. And that pie, that no-click search pie, is growing quickly. And then of the, of the searchers who actually click, something like 20% of them are still clicking on ads. A lot of people don't even realize it's an ad. They just click on the first thing that comes up no matter what it is. And so realistically, 
whatever search volume you think a keyword has, only about a third of that is actually going to be going into a website to satisfy their search. And even if you rank number one, you're maybe catching 20 or 30% of that. So assume that however much search volume, SEM rush or whatever tells you, your best case scenario is you capture about 10% of that number. That's crazy. That's a lot of risk. And Google's trying to shrink that pie as actively as they can. Yeah, to just keep people on their Google search pages, which is what we're trying to do with our pages, keep people on our site for ad revenue. They want to keep them on Google search for ad revenue, right? Yep. So is there a... Sorry, go on. I, I would say the areas that are at least risk are those where the answers are complex. You need to walk somebody through a number of steps. You need to have visual examples to show them. You need to, they need to watch a video to learn something. There's going to be multiple parts of the process and you're going to have to walk them through it phase by phase. Like if it can't be distilled down into a couple of paragraphs or, you know, a, a quick tiny visual image, Google's not going to be able to take that from you. They just, that's not what they want to do. They don't want to turn their search results page into a web page. They're trying to focus on the quick, simple answers. So I'd say the businesses that are at the least risk are those that are covering complex topics or large chunks of information that you just couldn't compress. Grateful that my business is a a very far from easy topic. (laughs) But I, I, I think about people that are, do have some answers can be simple some answers not. For those ones that aren't or are simple, but they want to make sure they get the traffic to their site, is there some sort of copy or some sort of thing that we can do in these caps, like in, in you know, um, the no search in, in our content to make sure it comes up and we get like a, a click through? My idea here is if I'm thinking about psychology is that maybe uh, we, we embed some open loops within that short answer that Google provides. Yes, and you can do that. So you can structure your content in a way that you're more likely to get one of those knowledge panels or knowledge graphs that Google's going to try and mm. extract that. So like this this post I wrote on diagnosing traffic drops, like I have the knowledge panel for that. It, a lot of people click through it, but all that really contains is a bulleted list of the things that I'm covering in the content. And obviously, like it took me 8,000 words to write that post and actually cover the, the topic in sufficient depth. And it ranks really well for that reason. It can't be condensed any more than that. But Google has attempted to condense it at mm. least a little. But in that case, it works in my favor. So if you have really complex information that you can, you can at least boil down the key points into a bulleted list, but you know that people are going to need additional information to make use of that bulleted list, that's a great way to do it. You can, you can use things like in-page uh, anchors. I think they're called fraggles. So you can use a little hash in an anchor tag with a name. And then you can build like a, an index at the top of your page so people can click in and jump down to that piece of the content. That helps Google to understand the structure of the content and the type of bulleted list that they could extract and use for that. So that's one way to do it. Um, using really good schema markup. Using schema is kind of a double-edged sword because you are equipping Google with the tools to extract your data easily. And they may very well do that and hurt your business. But Again, in some scenarios, they may extract that data and use it in this way, and it results in more clicks for you. So I'd say it's worth a test in most, space, most spaces, but know that you are also serving the beast that's trying to eat you. Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a great one to think about is that 
if you're giving just a short answer with schema markup, then you're opting in for not getting much traffic because you're going to give the solution without a click-through. But if you're going for schema markup, but you know that a good percentage of that traffic is going to have to click to get the the in-depth answer because your topic isn't as simple as being able to provide an answer, it, it could be a good strategy. So something to definitely think about. I, I'm very curious about how Google is actually going to start optimizing in providing, and they've start, done a little bit with video and YouTube and stuff like that, but podcasts are a huge thing on how people are consuming content now. Like not everybody gets to sit down and read blog posts and I don't know, you know, the numbers sort of start to suggest that most content is going to be consumed via audio, maybe video. It's, it's getting bigger and bigger. How do you think Google's going to be able to handle giving those solutions in, in content video and audio to to their users do you think that's going to be a, a thing that they're going to be able to pick apart different pieces of audio and 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 just put it in like a audio schema markup thing or something like that yes yeah, so google google's actually been doing this a while with youtube google already automatically translates like they automatically extract all of the audio from a, a file and do a transcription so they don't always post it you have to i think you have to enable it to have the transcript show you can go in and like double check their work but they are getting better and better at reading dialogue from audio or video and turning it into a transcript i'd be surprised if they're not storing that on the back end and using it for search if they aren't yet they will be eventually so you may do a search for like somebody's yeah. name and a piece of a quote and the search result is a little play audio clip bar that shows you exactly what you were looking for from that podcast or that video. That mm. makes a lot of sense. But it's also harder to structure. I mean, especially like videos may be more constrained in topic, but podcasts are off, like often all over the place. And so I think it'd be interesting if they do it. I have some ideas for how, but I don't know how much they'll do it. Tell us, tell us your ideas. I'm, I'm very curious. Well, I mean, that's so, so like that's the way I would do it. I would say if I'm searching for a specific topic tied to a name, if I were Google, I'd be more likely to pull from video and audio than necessarily a website. I think now that would be very, very interesting, especially for a mobile, a mobile visitor, right? Maybe you want to do that primarily for mobile, but not as much on desktop. That's one piece. What else? I mean, obviously, Google, like YouTube is the second biggest search engine in the world. Google owns it. So they know your watching habits, their browsing habits. They know what you what you listen to, what you view, how far you do it, how often you watch a specific channel, what you subscribe to. So tailoring your specific search results, like, hey, this person listens to podcasts and videos on YouTube all the time. Maybe when they do a search, I'm going to bump that up in the search pool and say, let's make sure that all of their searches, all their search results, if possible, include some data from this pool. And maybe for people who don't, they're not big users of YouTube. They don't listen to a lot of podcasts. Maybe Google shows them a different set of search results. I could see that sort of personalization happening. Yeah. It's it's already happening with ads, right? Where people are interested in a certain thing and then they start to see ads around that thing. Why wouldn't it be that when you go to Google, like me, I'm interested in surfing and I speak about surfing enough on most of my podcasts and as I am getting interviewed as well that Google is going to know that if something cool comes up around surfing when I've typed in something else, that's they're probably going to get a click through or they're probably going to get me like staying yes. on their, their search bar longer, right? Right. And I mean, like, there's not a lot of privacy at this point, to be honest. And Google, their biggest advantage is data. 
Because if you think about it, they have, they have the largest search engine in the world, the second largest, YouTube. They have Android. They have uh, now tons of other stuff. I mean, they have Google Voice. They, you can get Google Fiber Internet in a bunch of cities. Like Google has so many different sources of data that they can aggregate and put together. And then there's all the stuff that they can supplement from third-party data sources like Axiom and other data aggregators. So like, they, have, they have some sort of a profile on you. They know an enormous amount about you, especially if you use like an Android phone and Chrome. And yeah, like, just the amount of data they have is ridiculous. They understand you probably better than you do yourself. And that's their biggest advantage as a company now and, and going forward. And then they also have probably the best AI shop in the world with DeepMind. And so they can make better use of this pool of data than just about anybody else. So I would, I would expect personalization, especially extreme personalization, to just increase over time. It's, it's almost scary that if we think about what Facebook has in terms of data like that docker around cambridge analytica and all that sort of stuff you know dare say google's probably got more data than facebook on us and probably have a more in-depth profile than than facebook has on on some people because facebook probably sees how we scroll scroll and 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 what we're kind of interested in to a certain extent but the intent of uh, the data of Google knowing what intent we have, like what solutions we're trying to solve when we're typing that into Google, uh, that's wild. Yes. That's just, that's, that's very scary. Facebook has much more insight into your interpersonal psychology, whereas Google has much mm. more insight into your actual underlying range of interests and knowledge. So, I mean, of the two, Facebook's is the more useful pool of data for showing display ads because they like it's all about attention. Whereas Google's is the more useful set of data for actually presenting you with what you're looking for. Facebook doesn't have the same the same range of information and can't do that. But I mean, it makes sense, right? Facebook makes all their money from display ads, and they've optimized everything to capture data that gets more eyeballs on those types of ads. Yeah, it's very fascinating. It's very fascinating. So I want to I want to wrap up with asking you your top three SEO tools that you'd recommend people use if they have a content site. Sure. I mean, my favorites are still SEM Rush for everything keyword research, page research, performance. Uh, I would say Surfer SEO is probably my favorite at this point for optimizing content. It will go and scan through all of the top ranking pages for a keyword and tell you exactly how you should be structuring your content to be on par. And then I would say Screaming Frog still for the technical side of things, although a close tie with that would be Google Search Console because it's nice to get technical data directly from the horse's mouth. Cool. We will put links to all of those guys in the show notes. And if you wanted to listen to one of the podcast episodes around uh, Surfer SEO, we've actually had Michael Suski, I think this is the pronunciation that's correct, on, on the podcast, which is a, a very excellent listen. Sam, where can we send people to find that blog post that you were talking about, the deep dive? Is it, is it an easy link yeah. or should we just be typing in Sam McRoberts and then the, the keyword? <laughs> You don't even need that. I mean, I guess you can include it in the show notes, but if you just search for diagnosed traffic drops, it should be coming up number one. It has for like the last couple of years. So 
there you go, guys. That means that shows you proof that Sam knows how to do SEO. If it just tells you what to type into Google and it's going to pop up. <laughs> Where else can we send people if, if they want to find out more about you and what you do, Sam? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, SEO centric stuff I do on my website, Voodoo Marketing, V U D U Marketing.com. And then I spend most of my time on Twitter. So, Twitter, I'm Sam's underscore antics. Amazing. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Now, what I want you to do is think about two, three people that have an online business and SEO is relevant to them. I think this is an awesome podcast to share with them to talk about how they should be optimizing for the future, but also how they can be doing some risk prevention things as well. So please do them a massive, massive favor and share this podcast episode with them. And yes, this is going to help grow the podcast as well. So thanks for listening, guys. See ya.